0: I invite you to read along with me from Luke's Gospel. It's printed in your bulletin, Luke 19, 28 through 48. It's a lot of things going on, but they really, Luke intends for us to see these three events together. So listen to the word of God. After he said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he had come near Bethage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, Why are you untying it? Just say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying my colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus and after throwing their cloaks on the coat, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. Now as he was approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, a whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen saying, blessed, is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, praise in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, they were silent. The stones would shout out. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if even you had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there, and he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. To put a head of state on trial in the midst of a deeply divided population where bloodshed has happened and more was threatened, is it a triumph of the rule of law or is it a tragedy reflecting how far a society has deteriorated? Now, of course, I'm talking about the trial of Charles I. At the end of the British Civil War, Charles I was brought to Westminster Hall on the 20th of January, 1649. The trial went for about a week. Uh, he was accused of treason and tyranny and causing bloodshed among the people. He said that he deserved a different kind of trial and that this was the trial was inappropriate. Uh, he eventually was convicted and beheaded. Now, The disillusionment that came after that, people thought this was a a triumph for the will of the people. Uh, Particularly people of a Puritan um, bent thought this could be the beginning of making the Church of England be what it should be. But that triumph quickly turned into disillusionment and our uh, forebears who came to New England were part of that disillusionment of the tragedy after that triumph, so we exist as an as a indirect relationship to the, uh, the beheading of, of Charles I. Now, this day, the triumphal entry, has all kinds of tinges of tragedy around it, even on the day that it happens. Now, the story starts out by stealing a horse, and it ends up with a prophetic act of vandalism, not quite the things we would think are proper for a uh, king of the Jews, or let alone the Messiah to act. But they're all important symbolic acts. Now, it's important to see Luke's, Luke's version of the material here is based on this memory of Jesus' entrance. The Zechariah passage is a, is, a, is a prophetic passage, or they have been treated as a prophetic messianic passage at the time of the Second Temple. But it's important to see that in Luke's version, Jesus is in charge. We're not to pity Jesus as a victim, and that holds true throughout the whole Passion narrative and Luke's gospel. Jesus is not caught up in the intrigue. He's not a stoic hero marching to his, no, he is rather a stoic hero marching to his destiny. It was God's intent to save his people, and this is how it was going to get done. I love this phrase that Jesus responds to the Pharisees. And by the way, the Pharisees have legitimate concern. The Pharisees do not want the Romans hearing somebody called the king of the Jews. Because that had happened before and thousands of people got massacred. It will happen again and hundreds of thousands of people will die. But Jesus says, if the people are silent, the stones will cry out. I'm a history guy, as you know, and, and so I am tempted to stop by every monument I see, which would mean I would never get anywhere. So I usually just keep moving. But, but monuments are important because usually it means somebody slept here, something happened here, someone died here. For me, war monuments are particularly sobering, right? Because the dead are almost always young, died dead before they are time. There's a stone that marks the grave of my father, and soon where my mother remains will be added as well. But the stones cry out bearing witness to a future in Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem. Jesus comes to town with a huge group. And he says, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. I love the poetry in that passage. The gate that Jesus probably went in was the Eastern Gate that faces the Mount of Olives. It's sometimes called the Golden Gate. And excavation is done that you can actually sit on those steps. You can walk on those steps. So it's probably one of the few places that you actually theoretically can, can walk the steps of Jesus. Um, both Saladin and Solomon the Magnificent closed that gate, uh, probably for security reasons um, when they rebuilt Jerusalem. But that's the gate the Messiah was supposed to enter into. So I, I guess those rulers thought maybe if we put a wall up, it'll be harder for the Jewish Messiah to come to town. But again, this this... The idea that these stones are, are witnessing something. These stones are a memorial, if you would. And then Jesus weeps, so he's not so stoic after all. He weeps over what will happen in Jerusalem. The ninth of Av, which is the ninth, of the, of the tenth, ninth day of the tenth month in the Jewish calendar is traditionally when both the first temple was destroyed and the second temple was destroyed as well. I happened to be in Jerusalem on the 9th of Av one time, and I was actually um, there for the service, and they read the whole book of Lament the whole book of Lamentations on the 9th of Av. By the way, it was also Kristallnacht. Um uh, the Nazis chose that date on purpose. And where the site where I was at is where Robinson's Arch at one point was. It's on the southwest corner of the Temple Mount. And there's these giant ashers that are falling down there, these huge, huge stones from Herod's temple. And Luke, of course, has been written after the fact. So Jesus's vision is almost precisely how the Romans surrounded the city. And almost 600,000 to a million people died that day, uh, or those couple days when when Jerusalem was destroyed. And Jesus says this as he weeps. If only you had recognized the day that things beg for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemy will set ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. So the stones will collapse and and, and he will not be the only one who weeps when this happens 30-some years after Jesus, 40-some years after Jesus says it. And so he weeps. He laments over what will not be. The fact that ultimately this city will choose to go more political violent route, than to follow the Prince of Peace, which is actually the history of the world, right? How often have our triumphs ended in further tragedy? How often has power been misused, instead of for good, for bad? How much of our capital, our treasure, our young people's lives have been wasted on futile attempts to make might right. So Jesus weeps, then he gets angry, thinking about it. And he goes in and kicks over some tables. It's symbolic. He didn't cleanse the whole temple. It's huge. But he comes in and kicks over some tables and says, you people should be praying. This should be about prayer. It should be about following God. And you've missed the whole point. And so the triumph entry ends in tragedy, and and a greater tragedy is waiting to happen. You know, it would be our natural tendency to end the story with success, but Jesus is not about the power of positive thinking. Jesus is not about winning, at least not in a conventional way. And he's not about vengeance either. There is a time for celebration. There's also a time for lamentation and a time for demonstration. Palm Sunday is a proclamation that Jesus is king, but it's also a prelude to a tragedy. And in Jesus, the king accepting the death and violence that humans do to one another, He takes on his shoulders all the violence, all the innocent victims, all the pain that the whole world has ever done to each other or to itself. He does this voluntarily. People who were for him didn't really understand him. The people who were against him understood him even less. I think the stones We're closer to being right than anyone present there. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen and amen.